Once or twice a year, I come to this pulpit and I know that I have something to deliver. I come every week and know I have something to deliver, but once or twice a year, I get nervous, anxious that I, I can stay out of God's way so that he can deliver what he wants to say. This is one of those Sundays. I haven't felt like this about a sermon in months, maybe years. And um, get ready. It's going to be a fire hydrant. You're going to need a bib. You're going to get some on you. I promise you. And I don't, I, honestly, I've thought about it. And I just, I haven't been able to sleep hardly this week. In worship, I thought I was about to get raptured. And seriously, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm not, these are not words to just hype you up. When I tell you, Get ready, there, there is a, a word that is alive. There's a rhema word getting ready to be released into this place. It's been exploding in my heart. And this is what happens when you let me have a Sunday off, snow skiing. You should do that more often. Let's pray. Father, we are ready for your word. We're not here to get smarter. We don't need to know more about your word. We don't need more technical understanding of theology. But we need to hear from you. We want to hear from you. I pray for every seventh grade boy or girl, every college age young adult, every grandparent in this room, that we would sit here today and know God is speaking to me. May I even sit here or stand here today and may it be as if you are speaking to me. You use people in spite of all of our weaknesses and you speak through people when we yield ourselves to you. I'm not here to win friends or impress people. I'm here to please you, Lord. We just honor you, Lord. We honor your word. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts. It creates and recreates. It delivers and it saves and it sets free. It gives us revelation of future and destiny and purpose. And the enemy comes to twist, to steal, to hide, to confuse your word. But Holy Spirit, you come to reveal truth, simple, profound truth that convicts us and that sets us free. For Jesus, you said, you shall know the truth and the truth itself will set you free. Four verses later, you said, he whom the Son, who is the truth, he whom the Son sets free is free for real, free indeed. Set people free. Set this church free. Set our nation free. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Come on, if you love the Lord, somebody give him praise in anticipation of what he's about to do. Hallelujah. October 31st, night, and over 500 years ago, the year was 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, in Wittenberg, Germany. He was a theologian, a scholar, and he and other scholars had grown very concerned about what was happening in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was the only church. The word Catholic literally means, in Greek or Latin, universal. It was the only church. There was no Lutheran Church, Presbyterian, Baptist Pentecost, charismatic, nothing. There was just the Catholic Church. And scholars had seen the compromise and the corruption that had come in to the Catholic Church. And they did what brought great fear. They stood up against what was happening. And in those 95 strong suggestions, there were a lot of different themes, but Primarily, it boiled down to two or three. And the first one was, 
that we are saved by faith, not by works. You don't earn salvation. You don't get saved by what you put in the offering plate. The second thing was that the priests had become superior in their own minds. And they had taken advantage of their position of religious authority. In fact, the priesthood and the pope had gotten to be so powerful that the pope threatened the king. And there was a battle over the political and the religious power of the day. Not completely unlike our day. And the Pope had too much power. The church had too much power. The Protestant Reformation was not just about religious issues. It was political issues as well. The other things that were going on in the Catholic Church was that the laity, the common people who were not professional in ministry were still part of the priesthood of the believers, that they were called and equipped and empowered to do ministry too. But they were being told you can't have, in essence, you can't be trusted with a copy of the Bible because you're not smart enough to understand theology and doctrine. And you having the Bible in your hands could do damage to the cause of the church. Earlier that year in 1517, there was a friar, a monk named Johann Tuxtell, who began, began to sell indulgences. An indulgence was, if you give us X number of dollars, you get to sin without any repercussions. How many of you know that'll raise money for the building fund right in a hurry? <laughs> and that's exactly what he was doing. They were re trying to restore St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and they needed money. And they liked that idea because the coffers were getting filled up. And at this point, it had gotten ridiculous. The Catholic Church, the only church, was lifeless, powerless. There was nothing going on worth going on in the church. And so Martin Luther took his own life in his hands and he stood up and protested with those 95 theses. And that's why we're here today as part of the Protestant church. We, pro we, we stood against, as he did, those corruptions, that compromise. Took his life in his hand. Wars broke out. Germany lost 40% of its population in the ensuing war related to the Protestant Reformation. There's no way for us to fully grasp the significance of that event upon world history. And here we stand today. And I believe that we are on the threshold of a new Holy Spirit Reformation. Listen to me. Because of unfamiliarity with Scripture, now in the Western church, the masses accept whatever the spiritual leaders teach or don't teach. The church has become... Let's be honest, lifeless, powerless. The crowds are still there, or at least they were before COVID, and we don't know if they're coming back. We have plenty of copies of Scripture and translations that are easy to understand, but our Bibles are collecting dust. We need another Reformation. And I firmly believe that the church stands at the beginning stages of a Holy Spirit Reformation. Today, I'm protesting. I'm protesting against a lifeless, compromised, apathetic church that has no power to deliver or to see the miracles that we saw in the New Testament. I'm standing against a church that has no ability to see people get saved and transformed to the bone. 
I'm protesting against it. We were on the phone this week for nearly two hours with our consultant, Ed Funderburk, in, out of Gateway Church in Dallas. And he's right now consulting with 32 other churches. And he said there are two right now that are growing. Yours is the only one that has dynamic growth. That's growing at a rate that's hard to keep up with. And he, he's helping us understand how to add services, take care of the issues. I mean, administratively, imagine the New Testament church. They went from 120 to 3,120 in one day. And all they had were houses and the public square. So God can, these are God problems. They're not my problems. And he's more than able to handle that kind of stuff. But, so at the end of the call, I, I said, out of curiosity, I said, Ed, w w what are you seeing? He said, here's what I'm, without pausing, I'm glad you asked. He said, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of the mega churches, the bigger churches that I'm consulting with, whose pastors are telling me privately that something's happening to them and that they are realizing they've shortened their services too much. Now, don't get scared. You're like, you're, you're using that, Pastor Chuck. No, I'm not. <laughs> Listen, he went on to say, they're realizing and expressing to me privately that we don't have time for Holy Spirit to move. We don't have time to welcome Holy Spirit because we've got a crowd that's got to get out so the next crowd can come in. I nearly dropped the phone. Tears began to well up in my eyes. And one of our staff members weighed in and said, we started doing that a few years ago. We started making room for the Holy Spirit. We started praying and declaring, God, if you don't come, we are wasting our time. And what we are seeing is what a few other pockets in the American church are seeing. Churches are mostly still empty, lifeless. But there is, hear me, brothers and sisters, and we're right at the front of the line, and I intend for us to stay there because I'm protesting about moving to the back of the line. We are at the front of the line of a remnant church that is about to see and experience a Holy Spirit reformation. Augustine said, what the soul is in our body the Holy Spirit is in the body of Christ, which is the church. Francis Chan, in a book that he wrote years ago before everything he wrote turned to gold, he wrote a book called The Forgotten God. The subtitle is Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit in 2009. In this book, in the introduction, he says, if I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. The degree to which this has happened is directly connected to the dissatisfaction most of us feel with and in the church. We understand something very important is missing. The feeling is so strong that some have run away from the church and God's word completely. I believe that this, this missing something is actually a missing someone with a capital S, namely the Holy Spirit. Without him, people operate in their own strength and only accomplish human-sized results. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had not been poured out like we saw in, in, the, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people at times for temporary um, seasons, and they would accomplish great things. But they were largely left to live for God without the power to do so. They were still in relationship with God. They were still, listen to me, they were still his treasured possession. They still had the law. They knew his word. They heard his voice, literally. They still had a calling. There was a destiny and a purpose upon them as the people, the children of God. 
and they had a promise of his covenant, but they had no personal indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, please don't tell me that the Old Testament serves no purpose. It does. It serves two big purposes for me. Paul even says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, all those things happen for our examples. And in the Old Testament, we see two things. The first is the great need for a lamb of God. We see, this whole thing of killing bulls and animals and, and all the gory stuff of worship was so that the people of God, when Jesus came on the scene, would go, thank you, God, for the, your lamb. And this is why John said, behold, not, hey, check out the lamb of God. He said, behold, are y'all out there? Behold the lamb of God. There will be no more bulls and heifers and cows and doves. There'll be no more bloodshed because his spotless blood will be shed and take care of the sins of the whole world. And the Old Testament is, is there for us to see. There are 39 books going, God, help these people. And then he does. The second thing I think the Old Testament does, it shows us how patient God is because he's watching people try to live for him who don't have the capacity or the ability, the enablement to truly be his people. I'm reading through the Bible again this year and I'm working my way through the Old Testament and I'm, I just finished Ruth, I'm a few days behind and I, I'm just amazed, I don't know how many times I've read through the Bible but I'm amazed again at going, they're up and down, they're in and they're out. And God has done all of these undeniable, obvious miracles for them. We sang about them. Only you can turn graves into gardens. Only you can take bones and make them an army. Only you can take a sea and make it a highway. We just sang all that stuff. And God did all that for them. And they still, in God's words, prostituted themselves. And God says, I'm like the lonely, broken-hearted husband. I can't make you faithful to me. In Deuteronomy, these, this is the last part of the book in, in chapter 31. And this is Moses in his, right before he dies. This is, these are his last words from the wilderness as Joshua is about to take the children of Israel into the promised land. And the Bible says, and the Lord said to Moses, you're going to rest with your ancestors. And these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. Wait, wait a minute. You, you mean God, God, you're doing all this and you know what's getting ready to happen. Yes. And you know they're going to fail you. And it says, they will forsake me, future tense, break the covenant I've made with them, and many disasters and calamities will come upon them. And then the next verse, or down in verse 21, it says in the B part, I know what they are disposed to do. Even before I bring them into land, I promise them on oath. I know what's going to happen. To read the Old Testament is to see a God of love and power deliver a people who at times were clueless. And that is why he calls them stiff-necked, hard-headed, hard-hearted, unteachable people. I read the Old Testament probably like you do, and I think, man, if I had been there, I would have done it differently. And you know, you think the same, but you wouldn't have. You would have prostituted yourself. You would have been up and down, in and out, just like them. Why? Because there was an ingredient that I didn't have that I needed much like the church is today. In Jeremiah chapter 31, he begins to prophesy, and listen, this is powerful stuff that you've probably read before. He's talking about the day that we're living in now. The day of the new covenant, verse 31, he says, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. How many Say new covenant with me. How many of you are like somewhat thankful for the new covenant? Come on, somebody. Are y'all out there? So the prophet begins to say that that day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of uh, Evie and Judah, the Regan stripes. Verse 32, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. When I took them out, when I brought them out. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. Are y'all ready? Y'all ain't ready. Y'all are not ready. Are y'all ready? I will put my law in their minds. I will write my law on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. How is this going to happen? Another prophet, Ezekiel, speaks about it. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 7, he says again, God says through the prophet, I will give you a new heart. Say new heart. Come on, we've got a new covenant and now we have a new heart. And I will put a new spirit. Somebody say new spirit. Capital S in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit... Listen, y'all have read this before. Act like you've never heard it before. I will put, God says, I will put my spirit in you. And through me putting my spirit in you, I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. If I'd have been here in Ezekiel, I'd say, oh, could you do that now? I'm tired of loving a God that I can't please, loving a God that I can't really identify with yet. And here we stand. Many of us go, oh man, I can't wait to get to heaven. Go, Moses, what was it like to stand and raise your arms and see the sea part? Daniel, what was it like to sleep well in the hungry lion's den? Noah, what was it like when it finally started raining? And I believe the writer is correct. They're going to say, oh man, enough about that. Could you tell me, what was it like to live on planet Earth with God's Spirit in you? Mm. So we've got a new covenant, a new heart, a new spirit, capital S. What does this sound like? It sounds like the ministry of Holy Spirit. That's what it sounds like. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. He says, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow me. Something this is a part, you're going to have to get your thinking cap on. Now, if you doze off or check your text messages or you, you Snapchat somebody right now, you're going to catch yourself, I promise you, in the next eight minutes going, oh, wait, why is every, what's that, what just happened? This is something I've lived and taught and believed, but I've never taught it here since I've been the pastor. So get ready for this, okay? It's a little nerdy and heady, but it's unbelievable when you connect how God made the brain and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. So let me begin by saying this. Intellectual agreement is the opposite of discipleship. The devil knows the Bible better than you and me put together and combined multiplied by 10. Knowing something, having a shoulders up Agreement with a fact is not enough. So, how does the brain work? Listen to me. There are two types of long-term memory. The first is semantic memory. 
Your semantic memory data is stored in the prefrontal lobe of the brain. It's where you have jeopardy knowledge, where if you have a lot of it, you can make money. It's, it's, it's factual. It's real data. Like, you may know the capital of England is London. It's a data fact. You win money knowing these type of things. But your body is not moved or invested in that knowledge. It's only stored up there. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Like how many of you in high school, you knew all 50 states and their capitals at some point? And now you struggle. You're like, is it Jasper or Macon or Atlanta that's the capital of Georgia? You know, because you've got so much stuff up there and you haven't refreshed it in a long time and your third grader is asking you, Daddy, and you're just going, mm-hmm, that's right. <laughs> What's right? You know? There's a lot, and it's important to have a semantic memory. Semantic, it's, it's just words. They're factual, but that's all they are to you. They're just words. The second type of long-term memory is what we call autobiographical memory or episodic memory, some people call it. This is the memory of your story. Let me just stop for a second. We are learning so much about the brain right now, it's amazing. The NFL is afraid of how much we're learning about the brain and the damage that football is causing to the brain. We're learning a lot about how God wonderfully and fearfully made us with an amazing computer that is wired with divine DNA. Autobiographic or episodic memory. This is the memory of your story. For most people, it's their identity. It's who we are our narrative, our life. Our autobiographical memory is connected to our entire personhood. It's interconnected with our breathing, our heart rate. It's, it's your ability to relate with others, to feel comfortable in, in settings that require social protocol because even that involves your identity and your security and who you are and being comfortable and relating to others. It, it involves your morality, your empathy. It's all your social emotions. And episodic memory is usually connected to things, episodes that have happened to you. Like, for instance, to me, I grew up in Virginia. The capital of Virginia is Richmond. And that may not move you at all because you've never been there. That's, so that's a semantic data fact jeopardy point of clarification for you but for me I've been there I delivered car parts as, as a high schooler down Chamberlain Avenue which runs almost all the way through Richmond Virginia am I right Eddie he's gone he got raptured no, I'm, <laughs> um, I was born in the March of Dimes hospital this scar on my lip was because in my third month of my mother's pregnancy all my facial features didn't come together. And I was literally born in the March of Dimes Hospital. And every six months for my first, first of all, my first six weeks of my life, I was in that hospital. And my mother was in over in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I was born in the winter. And every six months, I had to go back to that hospital until I was 18 years old, just for a checkup. And when you go into the facial deformities ward of the hospital, you can imagine. I'm sitting there going, that little scar doesn't bother me at all because that poor kid has a tumor that can't, his eye can't see around. And so when you hear Richmond, Virginia, you go, yeah, Richmond, Virginia. When I hear Richmond, Virginia, part of who I am that's a fact that's on my autobiographical episodic memory. And, and, and it touches me differently. Uh, autobiographical memory is the only memory that 
can project into the future. Not semantic. Autobiographic. It, it can process what's happened and where I am and how that will affect me in the future. The only memory system that can apply a thought to your life because the memory of our past is equal to our future in the way that it relates and impacts. Semantic memory cannot be applied to your life. Are y'all tracking with me? How many of you are glad you didn't check your email or you're not on Facebook right now? How many of you are on Facebook right now? So if I say the capital of England is, a, is London, apply that to your life. You can't unless you've been there. And as soon as it comes out of my mouth, you, you, you remember the flight over, what you're wearing, how awesome it was. You biologically can't unless you've had an experience there and it's part of you, who you are. Now, semantic memory, prefrontal lobe, data, facts, jeopardy, autobiographical, who I am, identity, things that are in my memory that have shaped me and made me who I am. Now, what if I say to everybody in this room right now, God is good. All the time. If I say that, for some of you, and it's probably a high number, you have a shoulders up intellectual knowledge of that fact. God is good. But you cannot biologically apply it to your life or your future and you'll never be able to walk out in full obedience until you unlearn what you don't know and realize that you know it, but you don't really know it. And then you have an experience with God where he actually demonstrates his goodness to you. This is what I called when I was a youth pastor, our whole vision 30 years ago of our youth ministry, Pastor Munn would probably remember, we were called, our vision was to give our kids a first-hand faith. That's why we took them on mission trips. That's why we took them to cemeteries when they were high school seniors to write their epitaph. We took them to Northside Hospital where babies were born. And they wrote a page about what was life like in your family when you were born. That's why we took them to a junkyard where old cars Porsches and Mercedes were now in the junkyard. And we talked to them about having a first-hand faith. You see, many of us, we need to experience the truth and not just know it. To intellectually know the truth as data, as a data fact, to in, from the shoulders up, to intellectually know the truth or a fact actually inoculates you to the truth. Because let me break it down. Some people here go, yeah, God is good. I know that. And you do. You haven't lived it and experienced it, but you know it. And knowing that causes you to not Put yourself into positions where, uh-oh, God has to be good or I'm doomed. It inoculates us. Let me, let me illustrate that from Scripture. This is religion. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you can quote the Scriptures in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. He says, you know that, you think that in going to Sunday school every Sunday, being able to quote the law, having it on your frontal, prefrontal lobe, you think that in that is salvation. And then he went on to say, and the word is actually standing in front of you, the Messiah that the word you've memorized points to and you don't even recognize me. Why? 
because the Pharisees had not experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Hold on to hold on with me just a second. We have to experience truth, not just know it as fact. We have to work out what it means in our life. We are meant. Hear me, hear me, North Atlantans. We are meant to struggle, to wrestle with, and have a crisis of faith. It's part of the journey. Without that, we don't have a journey. So what are you saying, Pastor Chuck? I'm saying this. Listen to me. Anxiety is normal. Worry is common. Even Jesus experienced it. He said, how long am I going to have to be with these knuckleheads? You know, he said, Father, I know my purpose. You have, you sent the Holy Spirit in my baptism. You spoke. Everybody knows who I am. I know what I'm to do, but I, I don't know if I can do this. He prayed so hard. The Bible says he popped blood vessels while the disciples slept. And then he said, not my will, but yours be. If it's possible, can we do this? Let this cup pass and let's, let's do this plan of salvation without a cross. Hear me, brothers and sisters. There are some of you, it's okay to have anxiety or fear but it's not okay to let it win. How do I do that then, Pastor? Realize, Holy Spirit, God has put the Holy Spirit in you. And you can acknowledge, this is hard, really hard. But you're calling me to do it? Anxiety, worry, fear is okay, but it cannot cripple me. And it's in the, I'm going to obey and I'm going to step out and I'm going to see God move and deliver and use me and bring me through that to where I will realize this was a lie that I broke out of and into the truth. And then I understand, okay, what faith is, because I've experienced it. Matthew chapter 10. Hold on just a second before we read that. I, there's a lot. I just I feel in me. There's a million rabbit trails I could go down right now. All week long, I've been like, Lord, don't let this be a three-hour sermon. How many of you agree that's not going to happen today? <laughs> but I, told, I cried in the bathroom this morning. I just, the, what God wants to do in us. It's so profound. It's in you personally and us as a church. It's what he's trying to do in the world right now. But let's go back to semantic and autobiographical. Everything we know is going to be only shoulders up. In vertical church, we talk about it. Let me, let me, let's, let's break this down. Like, Many of you are not familiar with the freedom of spirit-filled worship or ministry. You haven't heard a pastor preach unorthodox, passionate, crazy sermons like I'm doing. And if you would have chosen it, you would probably gone, I, I wish so-and-so church would open back up because I like the way he talks. Seriously. And you go, I, so many of y'all have, you've just, you got surprised when you walked in here and you're like, Wow. I haven't done it like this before, but listen to me. There's something inside you that resonates. There's something, some of you hear, you hear things when I'm preaching and you go, I think there, there's like a magnetic pulse, like there's truth coming out in this place. Truth has a name, his name is Jesus. He's coming out and there's something inside of you going, last hold of that. That's, that's listen, that's not your semantic memory that's not your autobiographical memory that's God's spirit that he put in you to help you acknowledge things that you don't even know 
Are y'all out? How many of you are picking up what I'm putting down? I could go on and on and on. Let, let, let's break it down like this. Matthew chapter 10. I got to hurry. We'll come back to it in a couple weeks. Matthew chapter 10. This is, this is a pretty critical statement. Jesus, he's like, okay, to the disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. How many of you read that about eight million times? How many of you know, if you'd have been standing there, when he said that, if you were really paying attention, you'd have gone, I'm out. I don't do sheep among, how about send us out as wolves among sheep? How many of you know, seriously? Churches would empty out if they, if they heard Jesus say, okay, this right here. But he goes on and explains it. He says, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. It's a great sermon just right there. We need a lot more Christians being innocent as doves. Don't just be shrewd only. Verse 19, and Jesus says, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. Everybody stop right here. Y'all are a bunch of control freaks. You'd live in North Atlanta. Everybody works for you. You don't work for anybody. You are in control. And it's been years since you've been put in a situation that you didn't feel adequately prepared to do. And you opt out when God calls you to. Or you say, that's for the passionate people like Pastor Chuck. That's for the people who are like, they're not over the edge, but they're at the edge. If you'd have been standing, these are a bunch of fishermen, by the way. And he's going, don't even worry about what you're going to say. Jesus, if I'm you, Jesus, and I see who you're sending out, maybe they're not to worry, but if I were you, the founder of this whole religion, I'd worry. And he says, uh-uh. When you open your mouth, the Holy Spirit is going to come out. You know, When's the last time you said yes to something you didn't want to say yes to? When's the last time you said yes to something that you knew you couldn't do it, but God was calling you to do it? Oh, I could take an hour and talk about the ramifications of that right there. This is why when we're in the shoe store and Holy Spirit says, minister to the lady, we go, I'm not, I didn't realize I, you were going to call me. This is a pop quiz. You should have told me if you wanted me to do this. <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow. Next time I buy a pair of shoes, I'll Wait a minute. Wait a minute! God himself is in the inside of you, nudging you. This is what he said. I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you. Quit trying to come up with three points of why people in a shoe store should receive Jesus in a pandemic. <laughs> Just open your mouth. God is on the inside of you. He will come out and you go, whoa, that gives me anxiety. <laughs> Jesus had anxiety and he said, not my will. You're, I've never died on a cross, but here we go. No one ever died on a cross and been resurrected, but here we go. Is anybody picking up what I'm putting down? <laughs> Come on, if you love the Lord and his word, somebody say amen. Oh, man, I'm coming to a close sometime around 12, 15. We talked about this last week, Zechariah 4, chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all started building this temple when you came back from Babylon. All you got done was the altar. And then you got sidetracked because the economy, money started flowing again. and The schools opened up. And you got a post office now and a Publix and a Lifetime Fitness. And y'all forgot to finish the temple, the place of worship. And so he comes back and God says, listen, you've got to finish this. It was about 17, 18 years later. You've got to, you can't just have an altar. You've got to finish building the temple where God lives. And, and 
Zechariah says, listen, and it's, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. Everybody, I even talked about it two weeks ago. You know where I'm going, but stop it, okay? Listen, what, what do you mean, Zechariah? What I mean is you can hire the contractor. You can sign the contract, but he's not going to be able to, re, to finish this project. That's what I mean. Wait a minute. That's, when you've got to build something, you hire a builder. I know, but this time it's not going to work. I'm teaching you a new way to get kingdom stuff accomplished. So how are we going to do it? Well, hire the contractor, but make sure you hire a contractor who understands he can't do it except with my help. How counterintuitive is that? How counterintuitive is that to an educated person? How do you raise a teenage son? Not by might, not by power. See, I'm not, I didn't mean that to be funny. How do you stay married? Not by might, not by power. I'll tell you how we've raised teenage sons. The Holy Spirit and Candace. <laughs> Bishop Wellington Boone in his book, Your Wife Ain't Your Mama, over 400 pages, he said this, your wife is normally saying the same things the Holy Spirit is saying to you. She's just not saying it as nicely as the Holy Spirit is. <laughs> I, I've confessed that, am I right? And you don't have to acknowledge that she is the Holy Spirit, but God's using her just like. That's how we've raised teenage boys. When I came back and the Lord opened the door for us to come back into this church, listen to me. I was 50 years old. I'd moved past my suave, charisma, charm season of being a young, energetic, hey, hey, God bless you. Isn't this cool? Listen to this sermon, you know. I was past that. My stock was down. We had been through some stuff. And God called us back. And six weeks into it, I needed to know he had called me back. Because it was hard. Just a few years ago, this place had a handful of people on this floor. We had to tell everybody park out front, like I said. So it looked like we had people here on Sunday mornings. How did I make it? Not by might, not by, and listen to me, I'm, I'm bearing my soul with you today because we're at a point where it's time for preachers and pastors to quit playing games. We need some spiritual leadership with backbones and courage, and we need people who will rise up and say, we can take this together. Listen, God began to speak to me. You know, we had to get rid of the worship team. They were smoking marijuana while the preacher was preaching out between these two buildings. Literally. We had to help a guy that, who was our worship pastor. And we found more than 100 empty bottles of vodka in the room where he was. We, it wasn't, hey, hey, let's go find the former youth pastor and come in here and smile real big. We're in the shadows of Andy Stanley and Louis Giglio and Crawford Loritz. And we've got leaks in the roof and weeds in the parking lot and a tired campus. And this is why God said, pray or die. And this is why we started talking about being a vertical church. If you can just get the people of God to worship God and you declare the truth of God, God will come and do the rest. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. We worship you, Lord. We worship you, Lord. And hear me. Listen to me. Listen to me. I am a desperate, empty, broken, vulnerable man. I am not impressed with me. I can't do this. People ask me, Candace talks, how do you preach? How do you prepare a sermon every Sunday? 
How do you do it? I hated term papers in college and being a pastor is like writing a stinking term paper every Saturday night. It's the hard. When I was on the road, I had about 15 sermons and they were perfected. Whether God showed up or not, people got saved. Or at least they walked the aisle and prayed the prayer after me. You know, this is the truth. I'm being real with you. I'm not trying to be cute. How do I do it? I don't know. I told her today, I'll be on Facebook and God will just drop a rhema bomb on me. I, I, would, I hadn't looked at this book in 15 years. Well, it was written in 2009. That's a lie. It was 12 years. I had tucked it away. All my books are stored up there. We haven't even unpacked them yet. And God supernaturally, miraculously dropped that in there in my office two weeks ago. And I'm not preaching from this book, but it was God confirmed. What am I saying? You know how I get up here and preach and go, God, I can't do it. And God goes, that's all right. If you'll do it, I'll do it through you. And listen, that's how we do it. That's the indwelling. How do I work through anxiety? How do I work through worry? I've got physical issues. I've got chemical imbalances. I've got a history. I've got memories of episodes that happened. Not by might. Not by power. Holy Spirit, come. Send your fire and burn up my little offering that I put out here on this Burn up my little sacrifice that I put out on this offering. David, need you to go kill Goliath. Say what? Just take your slingshot. You've been practicing. Just that's all you got. That's all you need. You just take the cheese and the crackers to your brothers. Are y'all out there? How many of you hungry for a Holy Spirit filled church? Closing right here with this. Holy Spirit comes to do four things. He comes to reveal truth. Truth is a person. Remember, I've taught you this every other Sunday. Holy Spirit reminds you of what Jesus said. How many have ever just, I just need God to remind me in my moments of anxiety what he has said. Holy Spirit come and he speaks and that's life. Like, let there be light. And he speaks. He reminds you what is truth. He convicts. He comes to reveal truth. This is why Jesus said you will know the truth. You will experience it and it will set you free. Secondly, Holy Spirit comes to convict. He comes to convict you. Listen, not to condemn you, but he comes to convict you when you're believing a lie that's all it is and he's to remind you no don't believe that lie that heroin is not going to solve the problem two more cases of bud light it gonna solve the problem getting angry with your wife again is not gonna solve the problem I've come to go no to those lies and yes to the truth. How many of you have had the Holy Spirit as a divine GPS in you do that? Third thing, Holy Spirit comes to empower us for ministry. I don't do this on my skill set. I do it on His. He comes to make us witnesses. And lastly, Holy Spirit comes to do through me what I cannot do. He calls you to do something He knows you can't so that you will count on him to join you and do it through you. Brothers and sisters, look here. When we started this sermon, there's, we each have a history, and when you talk Holy Spirit, there's a group of people go, finally, yeah, we're going to get the Holy Ghost going up in here, you know? And, and there's another group of people go, I trusted this church for a few weeks, but I'm this might be our last Sunday. Listen to me. Because Holy Spirit has become taboo. Like Black Lives Matter. Do Black Lives Matter? Yes, they do. But even now, for me to mention that, I'm, I'm on thin ice with, with some of you because you're going, does he think Black Lives Matter or is he supporting Black Lives Matter? 
Well, what about other lives? See, that's what Satan does. He specializes in that. Semantics. Holy Spirit, do you know that there's a place in the New Testament? Paul is on his on the road to Ephesus. He gets there and the Bible says he discovers there are some disciples there. And the first thing he says to them, listen to me. He says, "Have you received the Holy Spirit?" Don't pull it down just a second. Do you know what they said? We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I say to the Western church, American church, forgive us pastors for treating the Holy Spirit like our crazy aunt and hoping she doesn't show up at the reunion every Sunday morning. Seriously. Holy Spirit doesn't come to bring chaos. Holy Spirit comes to bring heaven. When they were in one place in one accord, a wind from heaven came. The sound of heaven filled the room. Oh, oh. when we gathered this morning and worship was flowing, did anybody, am I the only one? I'm asking you, don't lie to me. How many of you felt like, I think this is what heaven's going to taste like? Seriously. How many of you are looking for something more than a, another exciting, trendy church? We're looking for something more than some sharp pastor who loves to hear himself talk. How many of you are looking for God? How many of you know our world is hungry for him? Come on. Come on, let's stand to our feet. Let's praise him like he's worthy. If you are hungry for more Holy Spirit in your life, would you just, come on, lift your hands right there. The breath of God, the rock of God is blowing in this place. You've just heard truth. Now just receive it. Just make yourself available to it. Come on, just say it. Holy Spirit, move. He, he honors hungry hearts. He honors desperate, broken situations. Oh, Lord, we love you and we praise you. Fill us with your spirit. Speak to us. Lead us. Come put your, your word in our autobiographical where we may not have even experienced it to know truth yet your spirit calls us in to experience your truth glory to your name Jesus come on I just sense we've got a love on Jesus right now Holy Spirit comes to exalt Jesus Holy Spirit doesn't come to give us warm fuzzies goosebumps he come Holy Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. He comes to glorify Jesus in you. He comes to make you an effective witness. He comes to do a Michelangelo on you, to chip away everything that's not like Jesus so that you look like Jesus. We honor you, Holy Spirit. We praise you, Jesus. cry out to the Lord. There, there's a calling falling upon this church. There's a Holy Spirit reformation beginning in the earth. We bless you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We protest against church without you, Holy Spirit. There is a move of God in the earth that we're going to be a part of. It's a Holy Spirit reformation and not every church or spiritual leader at this point is awakened to what's happening for every move of hell God has always had a checkmate counter move how many of you know he's still the champion amen we praise you Lord we praise you Lord Father, as we prepare to leave, I pray you'd put your divine chip, your DNA, that you hold that remote control and you, you turn us on or you turn us to this channel or you save that thing. 
may be, we be close enough to be acclimated to your divine global positioning satellite that you would speak to us and through us. May we overcome the fear of having to be in control and be prepared and wait until we're fully ready. This week, Lord, bring supernatural opportunities across our path. May doors open that we've, we finally start realizing that's you opening a door. May you speak to husbands who've been stiff-necked, hard-hearted, hard-headed about apologizing, washing their wives' feet, their children apologizing, ask for forgiveness. Speak to us. Lead us. Holy Spirit, you are the most practical force in the universe. Lead us, guide us, order our very steps. Fill your church with glory again, Lord. Thank you for awakening the spirit of the New Testament church. Thank you for hungry hearts who are desperate for you. Like-minded people who are gathered in one place, in one accord, so that the things of heaven might be released in this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Hallelujah. And now, listen, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you, keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. Lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. How many of you say, I receive it in Jesus' name? In Jesus' name. Tell somebody, I think I lost 10 pounds just sitting here in church today. Y'all have a great afternoon. Listen, we hope to see you on Wednesday night. Prayer on Tuesdays. Everybody's invited. Tuesdays at 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. We love you.